Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Mark Twain is such a legendary writer and Gilded Age icon that you would half expect his mug on a $3 bill. Relatedly, he was a disaster with his finances, going from get-rich scheme to bus-bound fad, decade after decade, lessons learned, lessons unlearned, money lost, oh, where do the creditors go? You're going to love these stories. Here with, I'm joined by the author of How Not to Get Rich, The Financial Misadventures of Mark Twain. Do stay with us. This week's episode is sponsored by our friends at Elwood Thompson's Feeding the Soul of the RVA Community. Uh, You know I practice what I preach because I am there all the time. Uh, The breakfast buffet is spectacular. You have a make-your-own bar with a refurbished, refabbed menu. It's delicious. The Blanchard's Coffees, I'm there on Indian Wednesdays. Additionally, Elwood's loves giving back to the community because it is the RVA that supports them. That's why one Sunday every month, Elwood Thompson's donates 5% of that day's sales to local nonprofits and organizations. You got to love that. Visit them at elwoodthompsons.com and at the top of Carytown at Elwood and Thompson Streets. I'm joined in studio by author Alan Pell Crawford. He is a former U.S. Senate speechwriter, congressional press secretary, magazine editor. You've reviewed books on American history, politics, and culture for the Wall Street Journal for, what, 25 years? I've seen your essays in the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Nation. Um, You are on – I've seen you, what, on Fox Biz? Uh, Mr. Crawford, how are you? I'm great. And – that they uh, sometimes I think that that resume of mine sounds so impressive until you look closely at it and you realize it just means he can't hold a job. Well, I think you and your subject in this book, Mark Twain, are kind of self-effacing. It feels like it feels like I, I'm looking back at Mark Twain, and of course, he died 118 years ago. It's almost like he endured these traumas for our sake. I mean, in a kind of self-effacing way. <laughs> well, yeah, and and part of why I wrote the book was I am so annoyed by so many books on of that that attempt to tell you the leadership lessons of so and so, and. I think that that uh, Twain's story is one of uh, repeated calamities, uh, and then he doesn't seem to learn any lessons. And at the end of his life, he's asked what you can make out of his business career, and he says, to succeed in business, avoid my example. The very last line in the book. And I'm going to take you back to the front of the book. And actually, uh, by way of background, you and I met at a book event here in Virginia, uh, my book came out last fall on uh, the cocaine wars in Miami. I mean, there's an intersection in the crazy Venn diagrams. I would never have thought that Mark Twain could well have become America's first cocaine cowboy. Tell us about that. Well, in when he was not yet 20, he was working at a at his brother's print shop in Keokuk, Iowa, which without a whole lot to do, uh, one biographer referred to Keokuk as a hotbed of rest. <laughs> and uh, he's where he there he reads William Herndon's book on his expedition to the Amazon in 1851-1852, and Twain uh, is very impressed by what he reads about the uh, the uh, workers in the uh, the Inca workers in the silver mines. Oh, the coca leaf! You just eat it and you go for days on on end. Not yeah. that I know. It, well, it's the perfect. Uh, it was a perfect way to create a dependable workforce which the uh, industrialists who were soon to appear wanted very much to do. And Twain uh, saw, he thought this was a miraculous plant, and he decided, uh, again, about the age of 18 or 19, that he was going to go to the Amazon and open up a world trade in the coca plant. 
He got on a he got uh, uh, on a riverboat and went from Keokuk down to New Orleans, where he l- very quickly learned that actually there were no boats, no ships going to the Amazon uh, from New Orleans, and as they said, they d- didn't expect any to be doing that uh, for the next century. And Twain said he had to, at that point figure out what uh, what to do next, and he had to reflect on what this bad news meant. A policeman came by and asked him what he was doing on the street. He had so little money, they accused him of, of vagrancy. He said, he said uh, uh, I was reflecting on the street, and the policeman said, if I catch you reflecting in public again, I will run you in. <laughs> so he could have, well, by the way, this became an important commodity because uh, parallel to this, let's say the 1880s was the incipience of the Coca-Cola company. And as we know, that original tonic and, and uh Mr. Pemberton, who was a Civil War uh, uh, Confederate general, I believe he had a morphine addiction, and he created this perk-up tonic in the pharmacy. I mean, I, I just it was formulated at Pemberton's Eagle Drum, Drug and Chemical House, a drugstore in Columbus, Georgia, originally as a coca wine. And we know the coca leaf was the base ingredient to this. To this day, I know this from kind of a footnote in my book, uh, it is extracted from the coca leaf, but the cocaine hydrochloride is separated from it. So you're telling me Mark Twain knew early enough that he could potentially, on, on a clean level, have cornered the market to the main ingredient of Coca-Cola, which would be explosive in profitability. Well, it would have if he'd actually been able to get to the Amazon. <laughs> there was a slight a, a mix-up there. His intentions were right. His intentions were excellent, and I think in a sense he was just ahead of his time. And by the way, I will defer to your your superior knowledge of cocaine. Well, Sigmund Freud was using it. You know, Thomas Edison told people he thought best under it. He could think for hours. He could be manic. You know, uh, Twain was on to something. Oh, yeah. And I don't think he'd ever, there's no evidence that he'd ever actually tried it. He was just impressed that other people could do it and work uh, tirelessly and without complaining for hours and hours on end. And I think in that sense, well, yeah, made a certain amount of sense. Remind our listeners of, of Mark Twain's childhood and the kind of the genesis, the exposure to uh, maybe the potential for luxury and wealth and quick riches. Well, he was born in 1835 and raised in the small town of Hannibal, Missouri, on the uh, on the Mississippi River. His father, uh, who claimed to have uh, descended from uh, the first Virgi- first families of Virginia, John Marshall Clemens, uh, took the family to Tennessee and then from there to Missouri, where he failed as a lawyer and he failed as a s- innkeeper. And he um, was a very intelligent, conscientious man who just was terrible at business. But he did scrape together enough money to buy. The family disagreed about this, but it may have been thirty to 75,000 acres in Tennessee, undeveloped real estate. And he said that if you hang on to this land long enough and sell at the right price, I will die poor, but my family will be rich. And so Twain said, you know, we, we had nothing when I was growing up. Uh, his mother took in washing. They lived above a drugstore for a while. And he said, you know, to be born poor is something to be said for it. And he said, to be born rich, there's a lot to be said for that. But to be born prospectively rich, he says, that is a curse. He said, we were always going to be rich next year. And I think this raised Twain with his uh, tremendously imaginative uh, kid to begin with, with dreams of great wealth while all around him because he was an alert kid that worked for newspapers, he saw great, great fortunes being made. I mean, this was a time of tremendous uh, uh, expansion of economic activity in America, and uh, 
Twain, with a sense of resourcefulness and ingenuity, thought, well, I can do this too. I had a chuckle or two uh, in reading about his misadventure in Virginia City, this uh, boomtown and mining, and everybody was seeking out riches and you know, gold, silver. At worst, maybe you'd find a little bit of quartz and rub two nickels together. Uh, but <laughs> he did. What, what, what is it called these days? Is it sponsored content or something? He was really ahead of his time in that respect. What? Uh, he, would, he would effectively write puff pieces for this uh, local trade piece out west about the miners. And even if there wasn't anything in the mine, he could write about the character or the people who ran the mine or how polite the foreman was. It says in this that, you know, quoting him, <laughs> Oh, my gosh. He goes, in your book, and quoting him, mine owners didn't care what the papers reported, provided they said something. Consequently, wrote Twain, we generally said a word or two to the effect that the indications, in quotes, were good, or that the ledge was six feet wide, or that the rock resembled the Comstock. And so it did, but as a general thing, resemblance was not startling enough to knock you down. If the rock was moderately promising, we followed the custom of our country, using strong adjectives and frothed at the mouth as if a very marvel in silver discoveries had transpired. If the mine was a, quote, developed one and had no pay or to show, and of course it hadn't, we praised the tunnel, said it was one of the most infatuating tunnels in the land, <laughs> driveled and driveled about the tunnel till we ran entirely out of ecstasies, but never said a word about the rock. Well, you know, the, and this was this was after he'd failed as a miner himself. He didn't go to go out west to become a newspaper reporter. He failed miserably when he tried to become a prospector in gold and silver. Uh, he, in fact, at one point, the poverty was such that he and a friend were living in a shack in a mining, in a little mining town, and they would go around at night and gather up the bottles of wine, the empty wine and champagne bottles. And to tent. look prosperous. That's right. So they would pile this stuff out in front of their shack so people would think that they had drunk the champagne and eaten the caviar and uh, thought that they were rich. Twain only became, only got into the newspaper business out there because he failed to, do, to, to succeed at, uh, at uh, mining. But they did get shares. I mean, in exchange, it was kind of a payola. And uh, as you wrote, the reporters were given shares on the sensible and generally correct assumption that they would promote the mines in the newspaper, mines in which they themselves now own stock and reporters oblige. So I, I just love this so much. Like, you you know, you, you were uh, transmogrifying kind of Twain as well. The reporters would, quote, squander half a column of adulation on a shaft or a new wire rope, or a dressed pine windlass, or a fascinating force pump, and close with a burst of admiration of the gentlemanly and efficient superintendent of the mine, but never utter a whisper about the rock. Mine owners were always satisfied. Yeah, he says that eventually they gave him so much stock, he had an entire uh, box full of them, I believe. And, uh, but of course, then, the, then the, the crash came, and all that was worthless. So all this... All this puffery he had done and all the shares he owned in other people's minds um, was absolutely worthless. Now, That's... about the universality and similitude of this, I was a, a brokerage apprentice out of college. I'm going to my 20th college reunion in a week, so I want to timestamp this for everyone. And I, too, you know, think about it. I, I was working in that industry between 98 and 2000, and everybody felt paper rich. That was the dot-com boom. You know, everybody was going off to take these jobs with startups with equity that would make you a notional millionaire. And I completely felt those oats. And so I found that, you know, it was amazing at this time. Like he, he had a swagger to him. He's like, we got these shares. I figured it out. I could write puffery 
and get these shares. But if you don't sell, if you don't learn how to sell, that's kind of a fundamental rule that people live and, and, and rue kind of centuries over. Well, my experience in that was here in Richmond when I worked briefly for a company that we did branding for internet startups. There was so much money floating around that people were wanting to buy Super Bowl ads when they'd had, you know, they had, they didn't even know what business they were in. So we were hired to come in and uh, advise them on how to talk about their business or what, what the competition was and what their sweet spot was and what they could offer the market. But, um, and, and part, of the, part of our understanding, I believe, is that we were going to get stock in those client companies. As they boomed, then we would, we would benefit. And, of course, that entire thing blew up. So that all went bust, uh, I, I think, in the bust during the Civil War. There was a stock market collapse, what, in 1863? There have been various that, panics. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look at the map, it's, it's unbelievable. There was 70, 1873, I think 1893. There are periodic busts during, during all this time. I can't remember exactly when that uh, – I mean, we didn't have rush. a Federal Reserve Bank. The NYSE wasn't – I mean, none of this stuff no. was very developed. No, there, there, wasn't, was... there wasn't disclosure rules or nothing like the SEC. It sounds obvious to us. But to anyone back then, you, you read this book and you realize the extent of fake it till you make it. Everybody was just faking it and hoping the next guy wouldn't catch them. I think that they would draw up contracts without even having lawyers look at them. They, were, they didn't have any way to do due diligence the way we can today. You couldn't Google a company and find out about it. Um, there were some, some uh, guides published, I think, by Dun and Bradstreet's early on that were uh, volumes of information, but it was hard to come by. And so Twain was uh, always thought in grandiose terms about what he was going to invest in and the money it would make, but he had no real insight or knowledge, insider knowledge about what was going on with these companies. It was largely intuitive. Full disclosure, we're talking to Alan Pell Crawford, uh, author of the hilarious book, How Not to Get Rich, The Financial Misadventures of Mark Twain. We're here in studio with him. Um, I'm, so we're, we're around this period. And, and by the way, it's a recurring theme in the book where it's manic and depressive. He falls into these terrible funks afterwards, and he's like, what am I going to default to? I mean, I'm a man of, of, of some skill. I can't really lift things. I don't like working in the mine. I don't like pushing mules. Uh, so when this whole venture in Virginia City, Nevada failed and the mining dream collapsed and his stock was all worthless, said for the next three years, you wrote, he may do with a newspaper man's pay. He was even gaining some regional notoriety with his satirical stories when he made one final forlorn attempt to strike it rich in the West, this time prospecting for gold in California's Tulum County, 100 miles east of San Francisco. From December 1864 through February 1865, he stayed in a cabin on Jackass Hill, one of maybe five such shacks in what has once been a town of 2,000 to 3,000. What is it about him and us that we can't just revert back to what we're good at, especially bad with writers? Um, he is a gifted writer. He's a gifted um, self-flagellator. I mean, it was charming. He knew how to say the right things. He's got these great adventures. I mean, people like Michael Lewis or Carl Hyacinth still managed to make a living at it in this post-apocalyptic period for journalists. But we're talking 1865. Well, actually, it's it's a fascinating thing because, you know, he he kind of ends up as a writer not because he has is any great feeling of mission about it, the idea that he had a pa that, oh, it's my passion to write and I'm going to do everything I can to become a great writer. That was just, just he backed into this. He found out he was good at it and he did, wasn't particularly 
uh, excited about it. He was rather embarrassed. He, he told a brother and that that this I can do this. I seem to be pretty good at it. But this was a means to an end for him. I, I it was never some compelling drive to to work as a writer, a newspaper man, or, or columnist. But or it's any the of that. fantasy we all have. If you don't have to worry about um, your finances and your progeny and everything, if you could just put that all on cruise control, on a Maslowian level, you'd be such a better writer. Supposedly, that that's right. The, Isn't that the fantasy we all chase? I think it's a fantasy. Sure, I think that that I believe in commercial culture. I believe in capitalism. I believe that that we do our best work when we're stimulated to do it by necessity and not because we want to be free from the tensions of life. I, I think that it's the tensions of life that give rise to genuine creative activity. You know what I also believe in, and I don't disagree with you that some. One, two, five, ten, fifty wealthy benefactors somewhere in the U.S. or world are listening to this program right now. It's like, I want to underwrite that Farzad. I want to be a patron of his arts. No, they're saying I want to underwrite Crawford. <laughs> That's the fantasy, isn't yes, it? Yes, of course. I mean, you know, Mayor Mike, Mike Bloomberg, wealthiest guy in Manhattan. I mean, that was great when he bought our magazine, which failed Business Week. Like, it's a guy who doesn't care about this. He wants to be at the forefront. He wants to have a toy. He wants to have a bobble. And that's, that's actually continued if you look at newspapers and magazines today. I'm taking you off this Twain reservation, but I am getting specks and flecks of kind of universality. It's like... It's like Mr. Langhorn is talking to me 118 years after his untimely passing. Well, you know, you also read about some great British philosopher, David Hume or someone, Scottish philosopher, and you think, you, you find out he was pat- his patron was some landed aristocrat. Uh, and and I, I would love for such a thing to happen to me, somebody that uh, would put me up on their estate in a really nice house and just say, you know, devote the rest of your life to writing entertaining articles. Didn't that did the Medici's or something do that? This is of course. The well, what's the last time it happened in America? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it ever happened in America. And you know, as far as Twain and in, in writing in the the apocalyptic uh, journalistic world we live in right now, he was paid just to he was paid a thousand dollars just to write uh, a travel piece uh, from Europe when he wasn't even famous. There wasn't television. There wasn't movies. There wasn't radio. There wasn't Netflix. I mean, the, newspapers were were entertainment. Magazines were entertainment, and he was paid by today's standards obscenely well. <laughs> no, gosh, I'm jealous. Of course, just to just to write a <laughs> letter to a new a long letter to the editor. Basically, he could make a very good living doing that. You know, you wrote Undaunted. It says in the front of your book. Twain poured his money and his wives into the latest inventions of his time, all of which failed miserably. Board games, nutritional supplements, watch fob calendars, a printing compositor that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to develop and was obsolete by the time it was completed. So jump ball, Alan Pell Crawford. Which are the other things you kind of want to unpack for us? Which are the other harebrained get-rich schemes? Well, my one of my favorites was the baby bed clamp. Uh-huh. While he was writing Huckleberry Finn and the, his, the startup publishing company that would produce that book, um, was working on getting that book ready for publication, which took Twain thought it was going to take him a year or two to write, and it took six because he said because he'd come up with this idea for a clamp of some kind that would keep babies from kicking the bed covers off of their little cribs, and uh, he told it, it. He spent 
hundreds of thousands of dollars to develop this thing. It was something that the that the uh, uh, his own business manager said any reasonably intelligent adult could have could parent could have done for a dollar fifty. And uh, at one point, he told the the people at the publishing company, "Stop worrying about Huckleberry Finn. Devote your attention to the baby bed clamp," which of course went nowhere. That's one of my favorites. What was it about that time, though? It's interesting that when I, I remember very uh, vividly in the book that these guys were out there, he and his pal were trying to stake a claim to an area, and they built this Potemkin cabin of sorts, and they cordoned off the area with trees and and saw it all burned down when they were trying to yeah, grow bacon. Yeah, well, they were they were at Lake, everything was up for grabs. Yeah, that's right. Lake at Lake Bigler, which is now Lake Tahoe, uh, they decided to go into the lumber timber business. And so in all you, you had to, to stake a claim, all you had to do was put up some kind of shack and, and basically kind of rope off or put signs on what your, what your uh, forest was. And Twain went down to the side of the, uh, to the, uh, to the waterfront and built a fire to make their supper that night. And the thing got out of control and burned down hundreds of acres. Throughout all this, I mean, and and you know what he and I have in common? I mean, I aspire to be as effortlessly sarcastic and sardonic and self-effacing as he was. I'm I'm really faking it more than he ever did. We both coveted a house in San Francisco's Russian Hill. I I never got mine. And he didn't either. He he and a friend had uh, found uh, what they they had staked their claim to uh, 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 some ore, a vein of ore. Out in the wherever they Virginia City, I believe at the time, and they all they had something like ten days to start work on it. If their claim would be forfeited, if they didn't do the work, well, neither of them ended up talking, uh, telling the other what they were going to do and who was going to do that part of the work. Uh, but the night the night that they discovered that they were all going, they were both going to be millionaires. They sat up all night talking about what they were going to do with the money. Uh, and they were going to build a house on – he was going to build a house on Russian Hill. He was going to go to Europe for at least a year and a half. I love how they always counted their chickens well before anything even threw cash flow oh, at them. Twain did it repeatedly, repeatedly. And uh, they lost that, that claim completely because neither of them did the work. One went, he went off to visit a friend and the other went somewhere out of town and they left notes for each other that the other never read. And so they lost the claim. They lost the claim. But it would have been a performing asset. It would have been a lucrative. Well, it was for someone else. Someone else, the person that jumped, basically jumped the claim on them. And I don't, I don't know the legal aspects of this. Did, um, did work that claim and made, uh, made millions. But you never know. The counterfactual is he would have become disgustingly rich, repaired to San Francisco, went to like a Chinese opium den, and, and never wrote some of the great aspects of the American canon. And we would have lost Mark Twain. Yeah. And, you know, as far as, <laughs> as, far as you saying you envy his, his ability to do what he did as a writer, what rem- you know, I, I, someone t- mentioned uh, Oscar Wilde to me recently and said, well, he's kind of America's Oscar Wilde. And I thought, no, he wasn't. Oscar Wilde, as brilliant and great as he was, would, would polish. You can tell he's polishing these aphorisms, you know, until he gets them just right. One wonderful thing about Twain is he's writing, he'd be in a mining camp in Nevada and he'll write a letter to his mother totally offhand, never intended for publication. And, and there will be things in there that are just as funny and, uh, and refreshing 
and current as as anything that he wrote for publication and that he actually worked over as a editing his own stuff. He's just he's just off the top of his head brilliant and funny and fresh. I mean, you can read the the humorous of the day. You can read humorous of the 1980s like uh, uh, Fran Lebowitz or Irma Bombeck, some of these people that were considered wildly funny during their day, and it doesn't hold up. Mark Twain holds up. You are, you are openly disdainful. I mean, in our conversations, some of you are the writing of kind of modern-day management speak bullshattery. And I'm thinking, but you know, it's very easy to say failure makes the person and, you know, fail often. And these these posters that sell inside the magazines, in-flight reading and everything, you know, don't, don't stop believing and whatnot. I saw in the New Yorker write-up of your book uh, in October – there was a silver lining to Twain's penury. It encouraged him to write. A fellow jackassian told him the story that became the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County, his first book, which was published in 1867. He wrote, quote, simply to advertise myself, he told his mother, and both Crawford and Twain's biographer, Justin Kaplan, reinforced that cynicism. Twain's goal, you wrote, was to make money and then make even more money. Writing books was just a means to an end. And I'm thinking about what we are admonished and told every day today is that don't do it for the money. Do it for the exposure. Like this is supposed to always be a loss leader for something else. But you and I in talking, I'm convinced that there's no there's no, no kind of pot at the end of the – you know, no. you have to take the fulfillment out of writing and, and yeah. creating itself. We're, we're told – I love it when, they're, when you're told, do what you love and the money will follow. Right? <laughs> what evidence is there of that? Another thing is that, that uh, if you go to any college commencement these days, the kids are told, don't be afraid to fail. Embrace failure. They're telling this to young kids coming out of college in the worst job market in 20 years. Right? And the idea that you're supposed to follow your passion. Twain, this was, uh, writing for Twain was a side hustle until it became a full-time obsession and job but but again, he when he was he was making money uh, from the sale of from from the royalties on Huckleberry Finn, he was pouring that into other business deals, and so there's there's his real obsession seems to be making money, and uh, and he will try to do whatever he needs to do within limits um, to make that money. But it, it isn't that he's uh, lying awake. Nights in, in you know Hannibal, Missouri, as a nine-year-old, thinking of the day he can become a comic writer, to, you know, to some extent he was kind of embarrassed. He said he also made a lot of money on the lecture circuit, and he said he at one point he was going to. By the time he married an heiress, he said, "I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to go be a clown in front of thousands of total strangers, um, and and debase myself in this way." And I'm struck by the example of Plasmon. If you tell us about that, I mean, he never yeah. got venture capital financing for this high protein, you know, food yeah. of the gods that just yeah. went when took he, care of the great things and you didn't put any bad things in your body. Yeah, when he was uh, living in in Europe, uh, he he learned of a, a food additive that was made from a waste product for the for feeding pigs, and he said it it, it you know could feed the world and solve all these uh, health problems. And he invested. He became the president of the American Plasma. It was called Plasmon, the American Plasmon Company, and he um, sunk a lot of money in this. And in fact, his wife, who was frail all of her life, uh, he was basically telling the doctors that treated her to to force feed her this stuff, which she did not like. 
and he uh, he lost a tremendous amount of money on that. And uh, uh, but but when he would lose this money, he would always it seems like two days later. I mean, we, yes, he would get distraught and discouraged, but not depressed for very long because he has this resilient spirit, which he, he's, he's always on to something else. But here's what struck me is he's sustained also a tremendous amount of personal tragedy in his life that would have derailed anyone later in life. I mean, family members, his beloved wife, people dying early, and then he'd take time to lick his wounds. He also moved a lot. And even then, he would come out of it on the other end with one last concept, which didn't turn out to be the last concept. Yeah, yeah, he would. He moved a lot. They, they, he was raised in Missouri, and uh, uh, was in Washington D.C. for a while. Was in Philadelphia briefly. Was in New York. Married an heiress from Elmira, New York. They moved to Buffalo, then they moved and built a house in Hartford, Connecticut. They lived for a while in New York. They lived at least twice. They traveled in Europe for a number of years, and it, and. Um, so there's there's also that kind of there's a certain manic energy operating there. So he can be tremendously productive even when he he's not the kind of person that gets discouraged and, and mopes. He gets discouraged and 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 somehow rallies and not only continues to produce books and articles and lecture, but he's always uh, consumed with these uh, these get rich quick schemes. And yet he himself said it later in life: all you need in life in this life is ignorance and confidence, and then success is sure. He said, "Ignorance and confidence and filthy rich friends." Yeah, that's a big that's a big asterisk. That helps. Right there. The fr- filthy rich friends helps. <laughs> Full disclosure: We're talking to Alan Pelcrawford, author of the hilarious book "How Not to Get Rich: The Financial Misadventures of Mark Twain." It's such a quick nightstand read, and you find yourself. What's beautiful about it is, this guy's misadventures they resonate 110 years after his passing. And I know, like my, I'm reflecting in my years coming out of college and the pipe dreams that I had. That there's such a universality to what he went through. He's almost like an American martyr. If he went through these various misadventures, he did it for the prodigy's education. Uh, in the few minutes we have left with you, I just want us to take, are there, are there any big lessons we can glean from what he did? I mean, buy and hold, for example, if he didn't obsess about this land track thing in Tennessee, I mean, the, 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 Relatives today would be sitting on something what, like worth seventy-four million on a thirty-thousand-dollar investment, but he never got anything like that. They had to sell it for pennies on the dollar. Yeah, they, they. I think they were very. Some of the family members were very excited when they, when they had a, a lot in a small town in Pennsylvania. That's all they could show for this. For which, you know, at the end of the toward the end of my research, I, uh, I did talk to some uh, real estate, uh, commercial real estate people in Tennessee where this land was, and calculated that it would be worth $74 million. So the so his father was right. If they just hung on to that, they would have been filthy rich. But this was a guy who, you know, in his worst moments, some people tried to stage a bailout. I believe Carnegie was involved. He did have patrons, even if he didn't seek them out. Well, yeah. And the man who, who helped him so much was a man named H.H. H. Rogers of Standard Oil, who, uh, when Twain did, uh, he helped Twain declare bankruptcy, protect his assets, which they trans- transferred the, uh, uh, the assets of, of his books to his wife, to Twain's wife. And so uh, Rogers helped him through this and began to invest his money for him and prudently. He encouraged him to take that worldwide uh, lecture tour, which, which restored the family to solvency. And, and and Twain did did quite well after that. And although he came up with a couple of ideas toward the end of his to, to after he'd already declared bankruptcy and gone through this, one he was going to uh, had a new way of uh, 
of making carpets uh, and, and printing uh, fa- uh, patterns on carpets for carpet weaving. And uh, his, uh, his good friend Roger said, look, uh, be careful. It's a lot easier to uh, stay out of trouble than it is to get out of trouble. And if you look, if you try to figure out what the lessons are, what, one thing might be just because you're good at one thing doesn't mean you're going to be good at something else, and that 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 you should go where you know where the commercial opportunities are in in the sense of what do you really have to offer the public? And Twain had to offer the public a brilliant writing and speaking, uh, but uh, did not have a great head for business. But that would have been a great. He he refused the kind of cruise control on this international speaking circuit thing. A person who looked the part, who was hilarious, but he thought he'd be pimping himself out as a clown. Yeah, I, I think that I think that that probably that does get uh, wearing after a while when you're traveling in small towns in America, uh, you know, in old railroad cars and staying in drafty hotels and eating bad food. I think, sure, if you if you married an heiress, as he did at the age of 32, I believe, and she was 22, and they inherited something like $4 million uh, upon her father's death about a year after the wedding, I think that, yes, if you if you can live in, you learn to live in comfort, and then you've got to go out and do the, do the one-night stands, I can imagine that would get pretty wearisome after a while. So what was the accounting when you looked at uh, the aughts, 1900 to 1910, his final decade in existence? What other than the lecture circuit was working for him? Well, he was getting book royalties. I mean, he was getting some decent income that was coming oh, in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, his books, his books always sold well. They, they sold very well in Europe and the English-speaking world uh, after he did his worldwide lecture tour. And so he so the things were structured so that he could he could write, and uh, he did live out uh, uh, in commercial comfort to the end of his days, which was good. I mean, this book has a comedy in part in the sense that it has a happy ending. I think he he does have uh, hardships, but he but the thing he he's pretty happy and comfortable man toward the end. Have you ever heard of Drunk History? I have heard of it, and I think I've seen it a little bit. It's so good. I mean, they do, you know, they did Harriet Tubman. Uh, what they have is a historian or an author mm-hmm. drinking and kind of telling the story, and they sync, they lip sync the actors' actions. I could, like I John could do Lithgow. This. John Lithgow did Hearst, and kind right. of they, they redid the kind of Citizen Kane thing and everything. And I don't know, you guys, we're doing radio, but uh, Mr. Alan Pell Crawford, when I first saw him, I thought. You were like central casting for a founding father. You could be on the back of a $2 bill. You'd be great for drunk history, man. They, they make you these great drinks. You keep drinking them, and I don't know, the tenor of your voice would change, and you'd reenact all these crazy things that Mark Twain did. Let's make that happen. Well, I'm, I'm hoping somebody listens to this you have slumming a bottle. podcast. I have a bottle. We have a microphone here. But what you're going to need Comedy Central to call you. You need a good agent. Yeah, well, <laughs> you need to promote yourself. Yeah. And, you know, put it on the back of a Plasman uh, stock certificate, which has to be worth something today on eBay. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Pell Crawford, author of How Not to Get Rich, The Financial Misadventures of Mark Twain. Highly recommend it. I love this book. Um, it, it's got to be adapted into something. And I love how uh, you, you share kind of his satirical tenor. Well, comes thank to you. you naturally, sir. Thank you. Thank you for High subordinating praise. yourself enough to come on my broadcast here. Uh, it was no trouble. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. You can hear us on NPR One and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. Love us, rate us, tell the world. To quote the great Mark Twain, 
The secret of getting ahead is getting started. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 